So if you've experienced violence, people probably wouldn't even think I should go to hospital to get checked over unless they were very, very, very brutally beaten and had broken bones, perhaps that might make them go to the hospital. But the hospital wouldn't also be equipped to go, oh, this is a domestic violence case, I need to report this to police. None of those sorts of measures are in place. So police don't get involved, the hospitals can't get involved, there's no way for them other than patching up your immediate wounds and sending you straight back out into it. There's just no structures to support women who are experiencing violence until the corporates got involved through the work with Bellissey and the Business Coalition for Women. Before that, there was just nothing in place for them. Welcome to the Medusa's Mic podcast, where we come together to stop sexual violence. My name is Lucretia Rackfield, and I'm so very honoured to have your company today. Medusa was a victim survivor of sexual assault who was blamed, punished, and had her voice taken away. Too many people can still relate to her story, and we want to change that. It's time for Medusa to take back the mic. In this podcast, we'll share the personal stories of victim survivors, hear from experts in sexual violence prevention and response, and talk to the quiet leaders who are creating real change. Sometimes the content may be confronting, and I urge you to seek support when you need it. But overall, I hope each episode helps you to feel more informed and empowered to take action to stop sexual violence in your community. Now, let's hear from today's guest. Hello and welcome back to Medusa's Mike. When I first met today's guest, we were both working in communications and media in a state government department in Queensland. Fast forward by a decade or so, and Morgana Pryor now finds herself in a very different cultural setting. These days, she is the General Manager of Brand Marketing and Communication for Papua New Guinea's largest superannuation fund, Number One Super. In her role as a senior woman leader, she is needed to get hands-on to tackle domestic violence at a sector, organisational and personnel level. She's also learned a lot and experienced some personal challenges along the way. Morgana, welcome to Medusa's Mic. Oh, well, thank you, Lucretia. Lovely. <laughs> so I guess if we can just go back a step, when did you first arrive in PNG? Well, I first came to PNG in September um, 2018, and then I first started working for number one super in October 2018. So we're coming at close to four years that mm. I've been working in PNG. And I've got two key questions, I suppose. The first one is, did you have any understanding of domestic family violence and sexual violence before you went in and how that would that could be managed within organisations? Yeah, okay, definitely not. So before I came to P&G, I'd never seen any organisation I'd been involved with even take a corporate stance on gender-based violence or domestic violence. I guess it was always implied that that's not something that we like around here. And we have a code of conduct generally that's to do with the business. But I'd never seen any business that I'd worked in be very explicit 
about teaching their staff about what domestic violence is and that they don't accept it and that they had very specific resources available for staff or have very specific responses for staff who might be experiencing violence. Mm. I hadn't seen it. But I think that is one of the interesting components about P&G, that the corporate sector has really stepped up in terms of saying we have a responsibility to do something in this space for years, they didn't. For years, they sat out of it and said, we don't need to do, do anything in that space. It's personal. It's a personal thing. But I guess what became clear through some of the work that, so Oil Search is a big company in PNG and the Oil Search Foundation started to get heavily involved in, I guess, looking more deeply at, they call it gender, family, and sexual violence in PNG. So more gender-based violence, family-based violence is the key terms that they refer to. But Oil Search Foundation was trying to figure out, in PNG, there's also no services and the types of domestic violence that's experienced in PNG. And the whole conversation around domestic violence is very interesting in terms of what does it look like. But I guess what's, what's driven this action in PNG is that domestic violence in PNG looks incredibly violent. So there is a lot of quite brutal, you know, physical abuse that happens in relationships and when it is that visible in terms of the violence and that it's going completely in the community it's being ignored so the communities um, people in png from a society perspective it's considered a like a collective society not an individualistic society and many people live in villages they have a lot of reliance on each other they talk about the one talk system so you rely on people to help you all the time and you're a part of a big network and meanwhile in their villages where this abuse is occurring no one is stepping in and I and I, I asked questions early on I was like well where are the like leaders of the community where are the church leaders because religion is a big part of things in Fiji why aren't they going and knocking on the door when they can hear this violence they're living right by each other you know it's side by side it's they're living in um you know, very basic shelters, everyone knows this is occurring. So why is no one going and and getting involved and stopping it? So the community wasn't wasn't stepping in. And so from an organizational perspective, what Oil Search did was they said this is having an impact for business. And they started to do the research in terms of lost hours, you know, lost skilled workers if they are no longer coming to work because they're forced into not working out of the desire of their, of their partners to have greater level of control over them or because what I really have learned through this is just how shamed victims are about being a victim. Mm-hmm. So they take a lot of that on personally and ultimately it impacts their performance and if you take a straight performance management perspective over that, then those people get performance managed out of businesses. So Oil Search instead said, all right, the biggest businesses in PNG, you don't want to lose your skilled workforce. We need to change so that we can keep skilled workers who are um, victims of violence in the workforce. And through the work that they did by establishing, well, they, they worked together with the corporate sector and they brought all the big businesses in PNG, so businesses like BSP, businesses like oil search businesses so the big mining businesses 
that rely, they have huge numbers of local employees. They rallied them together to basically develop a shared funding model. And those corporations are contributing to Bellissi that's come from Oil Search Foundation. And what they have done is they've done all the work for the corporations. They've developed all the educational resources and they have established for the first time in PNG all of the response mechanisms. So before there was no counselling available and if counselling was available, it was religion-based. So they may have been counselled because they were married that they should stay in an abusive relationship because they're married and, you know, they need to follow what God wants them to do. So by introducing counselling services that were not just religious-based, it was the first time that people had access to counselling that um, had different values around it in terms of thinking about the safety of the victims and um, them making decisions that are sound for themselves. It also put in place safe houses. So having safe housing in PNG is difficult for everybody. So, and it, everybody knows everybody. Like it's a small kind of place. A lot of people know people. It's easy to track people down. So having safe housing that's got um, a high level of security means that people who are in dangerous situations can be removed. And corporates also, so our business has its own safe house so that if we have any of our staff who are victims who need to be quickly moved to somewhere of safety, we now have our own safe house as well. But if they have something happen in the middle of the night, there's also through Bellissi, through this corporate sponsorship, now there's a phone number that they can ring anytime a secure vehicle will come and pick them up and take them to a safe place. And none of that was available like there was, it's not like you could ring the police and get them to come and take you to safety. It was not like you could go to the hospital and be safe. These sorts of services don't sound that, you know, incredible from an, from an Australian perspective, but for PNG, there was just none of it. So the corporate sector have funded it together by each of them contributing a portion to Bellissi. But what Bellissi also did, so through partnering with the Business um, Coalition for Women, and, in fact, this is how I believe our business got that involved in it. So one of our former board directors is a um, senior woman in PNG. Her name's Leslie Ali Tavari, a very clever woman and, and a younger woman. And so she was involved in Business Coalition for Women and through this work said, number one, Super, you are a big corporation. You should be involved in this, you know, change that's happening. You should be one of the employers. And so it's the two-tiered approach. We offer the services and everything that we need to your staff members because you're members of Bellissi. But then we also offer, through Business Coalition for Women, training for your teams, refreshers. We help you develop a policy so that you can have a policy that is trained to your staff about what you're going to do in terms of responding to family and sexual violence. Now, I've never worked somewhere where there's a policy about family and sexual violence. And by having a policy about family and sexual violence, I took it very seriously when I started. We were doing our first couple of rounds of training. I read the policy, made sure I was aware of it. You know, I looked at all the... It, it meant that we set up structures in our business. It meant that we set up a team of people. It meant that it set the, the tone around how we would respond. You know, it literally says in the policy... 
non-judgmental response to victims of violence. There's also conditions around perpetrators. If you know of perpetrators of violence within the business, there's methods to report them. There's also methods for perpetrators to access assistance if they, I guess, self-report um, around anything to do with per being a perpetrator of violence. And it's been interesting to see how that's gone in terms of training our teams. So we've trained, I've been a part of two trainings in the time that I've been here. COVID will have interrupted the last couple of years. And, you know, there was literally in 2019 when they did the training, there was giggling around the table, you know, around talking about these concepts, the lack of maturity from the team in hearing about family and, and sexual-based violence. There was discussion around homosexuality and, you know, the lack of maturity in the team. But what I liked about it was that the training was giving everybody the same baseline. I'm like, even if they are giggling, and the trainers were very good, they would pause and let people, you know, gather themselves and, you know, explain this is, this is a serious topic. And whilst you may not have spoken frankly about it before, you know, we are actually going to talk very frankly about these issues today. They were very good, very, very, very good trainers and very good at dealing with all sorts of responses that came through. In that first training, I know this discussion's been happening in Australia, they talked a lot about consent. And so, you know, trying to find how to communicate about consent, they used the video, which I'm sure you will have seen, the cup of tea video. Have you seen that one? I don't, I don't know if I have. Tell me about that. Okay. It basically said that, you know, having sex with someone is a little bit like having a cup of tea with someone. So if you say to someone, would you like a cup of tea? And they say yes, then you make them a cup, then they want to have a cup of tea. But if you ask them if they want a cup of tea and they say no, then they don't. If they say yes, I want to have a cup of tea, you pour them the cup of tea, you put the milk in the tea, they pick the cup up and then they go, no, actually, I don't want to have a cup of tea. Then they don't want to have a cup of tea. And it kind of goes through and then it says if someone, is a, if someone was awake and you offered them a cup of tea and they said yes and by the time you came back they'd fallen asleep, they no longer want a cup of tea. You know, so it kind of used these, this cup of tea analogy that was quite good in terms of, you know, nobody wants a cup of tea poured down their throat while they're sleeping. So, yeah, and that, that was quite good in terms of the, you know, and I know we've had this conversation around consent in Australia and about how we teach it better, but it was, you know, to see that was also, that, that was starting here, to see that they were doing that before the whole conversation started in Australia, trying to talk to people about, you know, if there's no consent, there's no consent and you need to respond to that, respect. Mm. I guess the second part of that is as an Australian woman, you've gone into working primarily in a completely different cultural setting, plus dealing with the subject of domestic and sexual violence, I think is what you call it up there in PNG more commonly. So you've kind of got this convergence too of a really sensitive subject and cultural overlays that you're not familiar with and you're in a new job and at quite a senior level in the organisation. And I guess I'm curious to know what was that like for you at the start? I think because I'm a curious person, 
I was very interested in cultural practice. So PNG is a rich cultural place and you learn very quickly things like there's 850 languages spoken in PNG. Um, you learn quickly about the things to do with how many provinces there are, what those regions are within each of those provinces, what the nuances that are easy to identify between those provinces. Those sorts of things are easy to understand. Because of my work being in superannuation, I also got really interested in what my team referred to often as cultural obligations. So cultural obligations often have a financial element to them, which is why we talked about them so much. And so the ones that I was particularly interested in are to do with death. So there's a lot of cultural obligations around people when they die. And there's a lot of cultural obligations around marriage, commonly referred to as bride price. So I do believe through the discussions that I've had with people over the time I've been here that bride price and the practice of bride price contributes to allowing domestic violence to persist and that families who have, you know, daughters who have married into a family and they have been paid, so they have received payment for their daughter, um, that they don't want their daughter to come home, even if they're experiencing violence, because there would be an obligation for them to repay the money. So I do think that these elements have contribute. I don't think that uh, they're being too openly discussed in community. Hi, Lucretia here. I hope you're enjoying today's conversation. I always learn so much from my guests and I hope you do too. After all, the whole reason for this podcast is to empower everyday people like you and me with the information and tools we need to stop sexual violence in our communities. I honestly believe we all have a role to play and we can create real change through our own grassroots actions. If you'd like to support this podcast and help fund its production and promotion so we can reach even more people, you can become a patron. Just click the button on the website or in the Podbean app and put in your details. You can give as much or as little as you like, and I would be so grateful for your support. Now, let's get back to today's guest. I hear in my team individuals who are saying we want to break this cycle of cultural obligation to being about what it used to be about. You know, so when people got married, we celebrated. And if people died, we mourned. But instead, now there's these quite big financial obligations around both of these practices that are, that are a drain for the families that are, you know, the people who are being married, it's a drain for them to deal with the bride price. And then for the people who have had a loved one who've passed away, it's a drain for them to deal with the cultural obligations around providing for people during that time. So they're very interesting the way that those two different financial obligations resulted in me having conversations with people early on about just things that I hadn't really understood you know and and people in in Australia people talk about being given away and you know once upon a time you know brides had dowries and all that sort of thing but I guess that's what bride price is 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 a dowry but the whole family contributes to it and then yeah 
it has definitely locked women into being in a position of the family not wanting them to return home because there's usually nowhere else for them to go. Mm. So there's like that women don't just, they just can't go and live somewhere else, go and get their own rental and live somewhere because the housing is very insecure and not as safe. So if they need to leave a violent relationship, they, they generally need to go back home. Right. And if you can't go back home, where are you going to go, essentially? Exactly. exactly. I was thinking if your family are trying to encourage you not to come back, your family is saying just work it out, just patch it up because of these obligations. Mm. It does put a different over it in terms of why people don't leave abusive situations. Mm, mm. I mean, there's always good reasons, inverted commas, why people will stay in those situations, and that sounds like a very compelling reason. Also, I suppose if they can't go back to their family and they can't have a place to live, there's really no support network for them, and that makes it, well, what are you going to do? Where are you going to go? Nowhere. You stay and continue to be beaten or experience whatever the violence is. I guess I'm curious to know, when you first came on board, was there any kind of, were the structures already in place to address DV within the organisation or were they in the process of being created or did they come afterwards? So when I started, they had just been adopted. So we just put in the family and sexual violence policy. We had just joined Bellissi and we had just arranged our first training for um, the Business Coalition for Women to come in and do training for our staff. And by working with these well-coordinated organisations, corporates, Bellissi and Business Coalition for Women, number one super was able to go from nowhere to somewhere really quickly because they had the skills and experience in terms of how do you write a policy that your board is going to accept and adopt around family and sexual violence? And they knew because they'd already been doing it and supporting other businesses to get these in, in place. So we were able to very quickly get, you know, the basic foundations in place to change the conversation around family and sexual violence in the business to being something that's like dealt with on an individual case-by-case basis to something that we train everybody in the business to know how, how we respond and what we expect of our staff. I think one thing that really struck me in a conversation we had before, I think it was you were talking about, you know, how basically if someone is experiencing this, they've got nowhere to go and you can't just call the police and you can't go to hospital. I'm assuming that's because the responses from those institutions are not ideal at this time. Is that a correct assumption to make? Police wouldn't be able to prioritise a domestic violence case here. It would have to be a very extreme domestic violence case for them to get involved. And then hospitals, again, there's just no way to get to hospital. So even if you're experiencing violence, there's just low health-seeking behaviour in the Papua New Guinean um, community. So if you've experienced violence, people probably wouldn't even think I should go to hospital to get checked over unless they were very, very, very brutally beaten and had broken bones. Perhaps that might make them go to the hospital, but the hospital wouldn't also be equipped to go, oh, this is a domestic violence case, I need to report this to police and I need to do none of those sorts of measures are in place. So police don't get involved, the hospitals can't get involved, there's no way for them other than patching up your immediate wounds and sending you straight back out into it. There's just no structures to support women who are experiencing violence. 
until the corporates got involved through the work with Bellissi and the Business Coalition for Women. Mm. Before that, there was just nothing in place for them. So this is really interesting to me because what you're talking about is actually business and organisations stepping in and playing a really incredibly active role in stopping domestic and family violence and sexual violence in their, in the communities in which you are located and supporting your staff by equipping them with more skills and more understanding. And you also mentioned safe houses before and that kind of thing. So businesses are really taking a super active role. And in Australia, at least, it's not managed that way. Yes, we have different structures. We have different policing. Our police operate in a different way and we have different health structures and and more infrastructure around responses and support services. But I really, I think this idea about business being far more active in this space is really exciting. And yeah, I'm really intrigued by that. Having a a policy is such a great thing. So I've, I've dealt with several domestic violence cases whilst I've been a manager here. Having the policy in place made it very clear that I had obligations. I had obligations to do something. Number one, super had obligations to do something. When I was younger, before we worked together a decade or more ago, I I was in a, you know, team leaderish kind of role, much more junior than I am now. And I was contacted very early in the morning by a young woman who told me that she was experiencing violence at that time. And so she'd gotten out of the violent situation. She must have had police. And she wasn't going to come to work tomorrow. And I was like, oh, okay. I had no idea what I was supposed to do. As I went the next day and I spoke to my boss and said, this happened. And he said, oh, well, is she all right? I said, I think so. But she's not coming in today. Whereas when she came in, there's nothing to guide what happens next. Whereas with my staff and with my wider team in PNG, where there have been issues that they've been experiencing, I have a policy that guides what I'm supposed to do. Even if I'm poorly skilled personally to try and manage it, my policy tells me we have a network that are available for these people to speak to if I don't feel like I'm the right person to manage that situation. I can plug them into the network, the the group that's been set up to help respond to these situations. So as a business, I know I have to do something because in Australia, actually there is a lot of talent war going on now, this discussion around keeping and retaining highly skilled workers and people who are good for your business. There is much more discussion around that at the moment. But in PNG, it's so critical. Highly skilled people are hard to come by. And if you've invested heavily in staff, you don't want them to go. So from a business perspective, it makes a lot of sense to actually get involved in these issues and try and respond quickly, help your own staff, be compassionate, and then get that staff member back to a position where they're they're functioning well in the team and are able to contribute for who knows how much longer, to the growth of the business. I hope you've been enjoying this conversation with Morgana Pryor as much as I have been. Seriously, I've just been absorbing so much information and I've felt absolutely riveted by 
the approach that her organisation and the sector is taking to address domestic and sexual violence in PNG. But there was just way too much to fit into one episode. So there is a part two waiting for you in episode nine. So please go and check it out if you would like to hear more. Take care and I'll see you there. Thanks so much for your company today. If you feel more informed or empowered after listening to this podcast, please leave us a review or share this episode with a friend or family member. Medusa's Mic is brought to you by the Stop Sexual Violence Collaboration, an enterprise to bring people together to discuss and facilitate sexual violence prevention and response initiatives. The music for today's podcast is brought to you by Dima Tishko from Tank. The opinions and perspectives offered on Medusa's mic are solely those of the interviewer and the interviewees. They are our express personal opinions and views. They are not intended or meant to replace any treatment or advice you may be receiving from a licensed professional. If you have specific concerns or a situation in which you require professional, psychological, medical or legal help, you should consult with an appropriately trained and qualified specialist. This episode is copyrighted and should not be reproduced without express permission from SSV Colab and Lucretia Ackfield.